Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Last week, John Rosevere and I sat down with Ed Niedermeyer, auto journalist, co-host of the Autonicast, and author of Ludacris, The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. I personally started listening to the Autonicast about a year and a half ago, and it's been invaluable to me in learning about the technology behind and the practical considerations that drive the self-driving car industry. In our conversation, we cover a wide range of topics, from how the hype cycle has driven attitudes toward the self-driving industry, the recent reveal of the cruise origin ride-sharing vehicle with no steering wheel or pedals, and whether Uber really should be developing its own self-driving stack. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Ed Niedermeyer, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Ed, uh, you know, you're uh, someone who focuses heavily on the autonomy space, this industry. I know from my own personal experience, as I've, as I've tried to learn about it, it's very complex and it's really easy to have uh, perceptions of the industry that maybe don't fit what the state of the art is today. So, when you look at, at the industry today, what do you think is the number one thing people get wrong about it? Man, uh, well, it, it's really hard. Like, so, so, as you say, autonomy is a super complex issue and and actually even just tracking perceptions of autonomy itself like you could break just public perception of autonomy out into its own area of study and it would be <laughs> fascinating and complex and super hard to nail down um even though you don't have the sort of like you know proprietary trade secrets and stuff that you have on the on the technology side or, or the business side for that matter um so you know trying to characterize any one public perception is is just difficult um i would say sort of you know, what what we've seen happen is sort of this wave of hype that happened um sort of in you know 2015 2016 sort of really from 2013 through through about 28 early 2018 or so and then the last couple of years um we've seen sort of this move into what we call the trough of disillusionment um and i think in both of those cases what we've just seen is that perceptions have have always sort of gone to the extremes of what's actually going on like the the the, the signal uh has been you know pretty consistent uh, and the noise has just gone up to like these these extreme highs of overhype and extreme lows now, I think, of of pessimism. Um, and so, you know, that that that's really where the perception issue is, I think. Yeah, it's classic Gardner hype cycle, which I mean, we've seen this before with other emerging technologies. But um, this is so big and such promises were made for it and being touted three, four years ago. That, you know, <laughs> here we are now. It's like, oh, this is never going to happen. You know, but yeah. <laughs> that's not what the signals telling us either. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, as you, what do you think has been behind the, this kind of difference in perception versus what's going on in the industry? I know we've had a number of operators that really were very, very optimistic about the space, as you mentioned back earlier, earlier in the decade. And over that time, we've seen a number of deadlines come and leave. Um, what, what, what's been the, the, the divergence between what the industry thought that they could deliver on these deadlines and what, where we're looking at today? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you have a mix of factors, right? So, so definitely like, in any technology sector, like optimism is almost like a precondition. Like you have to be optimistic to like try and develop new technologies and build new business models. And like, so some of, some of this is just a product of, of that natural optimism. Um, I definitely think that there's a, a dynamic in venture capital. Uh, a very, is, venture cap, it was a little bit of a surprise to me sort of learning about venture capital, like how trend driven it is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the mythology around venture capitalists is so sort of independent, you know, the lone man sort of surveying the horizon from his craggy, you know, clifftop. Uh, but they're, they're very herd-like, really. And, and what you have when, when you get these trends um, is sort of these rushes in a certain direction. Uh, and then these sort of not ideal incentives for founders and, and, and people who actually do understand the technology to, to overplay it, to overhype it. Um, and especially when, you know, you start competing to get the biggest valuation and the biggest round or whatever. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I think a combination of, of natural optimism and, and some like not ideal dynamics in, in venture capital have led to a lot of overhyping, uh, a lot of overpromising. And, you know, this, this trough of disillusionment to some extent is just like the natural price that you pay for that. Uh, absolutely. As we've seen the trough of disillusionment play out and we've seen access to capital in the space start to slow down, we've seen uh, some consolidation in the space as these main autonomy players have coalesced around major OEMs. We've got Ford and Argo, GM, uh, Cruise uh, and Honda all working together. Uh, it, 
do you see that as a trend that's going to continue over time and that you know we look down five, ten years down the line uh, that we see these major autonomy operators partnered up uh, with traditional auto OEMs and those being the folks who drive this industry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, it's been really fascinating to watch because sort of the narrative in the early sort of more hype filled days was that, you know, Waymo and maybe a handful of others, uh, um, you know, that were the leaders, um, we're going to basically be able to, uh, you know, reduce the automakers to sort of, uh, you know, the, the Foxconn of cars, right? Uh, yeah, hardware makers, hardware makers. And, and, yeah, and, and Android or Waymo was where the money was going to be. That's um, the story, and, yeah. Which is strange, right? Because like, you know, it turns out, lo and behold, like these are very tightly integrated systems. And when you have extremely complex technological devices, you know, whatever they are, uh, the more tightly integrated they are, uh, the better. And so I think there's, you know, some of this is just a natural sort of transition to like, as you get closer to the problem and you, you get closer to, the, to an understanding of what this product is going to eventually look like the more you appreciate the fact that like, you know, no one part of this is just that much more important than the rest of it. It's, it's just a, a, it's about integrating a bunch of really complex technologies into the best possible package. And frankly, that's like what car makers do, right? Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think, I think to go to your point about the power of VCs in this, there was a certain current from the VC that, you know, all of the good stuff is going to be invented, you know, south of uh, San Francisco and you know the the dumb people in Detroit just can't do this and I think everybody's kind of come to an understanding that that's not actually the reality that that you know these are more partners rather than you know Detroit banging out the hardware for the great software that will you know collect all the revenue and everything um, and that has been interesting to watch too and I think I think the example of Tesla has been instructive for a whole lot of people like wow making cars is really hard <laughs> I think a lot of people have had that awakening in the last three years or so yeah yeah and as we talk about how how the, the as the technology has developed, uh, we've gotten kind of a more realistic uh, expectation uh, of how these things are going to play out over time and how these companies need to work together. Uh, we've seen, you know, John mentions mentions Tesla Autopilot, uh, the ADAS system that, that's on the road today. We're starting to see other other automakers start to roll those uh, autonomy features out. When you look at that sector of autonomy, separate and apart from the level four plus uh, full self driving, how do you see those those features starting to roll out here in the next few years? Yeah, um, so it's it that that's been a really interesting thing to watch, and to sort of echo what what John was saying, like clearly a lot of people in in all aspects of this this space, if you look at automated driving more broadly, or really just mobility technology more broadly, everyone's been watching Tesla. Um, and uh, though in the public perception, maybe you know the pros are are sort of tend to outweigh the cons in, in public perception. I think certainly for the people who are running these companies, they're paying as much attention to the to the challenges that Tesla's had as to the pros, and they're learning. Yeah, some of this stuff is really hard. And it just doesn't make sense for us to reinvent. Uh, the wheel that way uh, when we have these willing partners who are not only bring know-how, but also, by the way, capital, which we need to survive because we don't have viable business models right now. Uh, and also so ADAS, uh, yeah. employees, employees. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, totally. I mean, these partners are bringing in. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's where the driver assistance system kind of actually comes in because, you know, these companies that are developing and, and a lot of it like on the sensor side, um, they're finding, oh, wow, like, you know, the market that we thought was going to be here for robotaxis in, in the shorter term is just not materializing. We're, we're seeing a lot of companies pivot into ADAS driver assistance, which Tesla has done a lot to popularize. Uh, I think it's also done a lot to uh, raise questions about, like, given their specific implementation. But I think, I think you know, one of the, the influences that Tesla will have in a lasting way is that, um, that technology will become very common, and what the auto industry is good at is commodifying technology. Sure, that's I, what we're going to see. You, you mentioned the, the the sensor suppliers, which is an area I, I wanted to talk about briefly. Over the summer, uh, there were suggestions that Velodyne LiDAR was getting ready to IPO. Uh, we, we've seen the costs of those systems really come down significantly uh, over the past couple of years. When you look at the, the sensor market and the companies playing in that space, uh, how do you how do you? Uh, I guess what should we know about that as investors and folks following the space? Yeah, well, uh, I would say sensors. You know, every time I talk to venture capitalists uh, and 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 investors, I you know, uh, I always ask the question, you know, what 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 sector of automated driving in particular is sort of the most overinvested? And like the answer is literally always sensors. Um, and if you get them to drill down, it's almost always lidar. There are tens of lidar companies. There's no way the market can support that. Uh, there's, you know, we've been waiting for consolidation, frankly, like over the last year. Um, there's got to be some this year. Uh, we have seen some companies, you know, 
fold up and, and return so one company return money to investors, uh, I think there will be more force down that route. And is that just the commoditization of the industry or the or the self-driving has, has not ramped up uh, as quickly as folks expected and there's overcapacity? What's been driving that? A little bit of everything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely the fact that the robotaxi market hasn't developed. There's, there are ADAS businesses that, that you can use as a stopgap, but there there's only so many. And again, like it kind of comes down to like your ability, you know, there, there's this belief in, in Silicon Valley that like, uh, you know, if you have the best tech, like the world beats its path to your door. And, and what they're finding, what the smart companies have, have really embraced is that like uh, there's this, uh, there's a whole skill set around incorporating yourself into the automotive supply chain. And like you can't just arrogance your way into that. Like you have to work the system. And the companies that have embraced that um, are getting some of those contracts and the ones that don't aren't going to make it. Yeah, so let's let's move on and talk about uh, some of the companies that are operating in this space. Uh, you know, as we record here on January twenty fourth, just this past week, the big reveal uh, was the Cruise Origin vehicle rollout. You were there in person, Ed. Uh, what should we be taking away from this from this rollout? Yeah, so that is is really interesting. Um, I'm actually working on a piece about that right now um, because I think like uh, the 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 event itself did not do a great job of explaining what I think is is important about that vehicle. Um, I think the the most one of the most important things uh, that came out of that event was uh, that really resonated with with what I saw in the vehicle itself was um, Dan Ammon actually the CEO of Cruise uh, answered a question that I see people get stumped on uh, by a lot in this space which is what does an AV offer to a consumer that a human driven Uber or Lyft doesn't this is actually a, quite a difficult question to answer like a lot of people will assume privacy no gonna be full of cameras not that. Uh, cost well, not necessarily, right? Like, although although I do think that the cruise, um, that Origin vehicle, uh, clearly cost engineered in a way that I think is really interesting and really important. But the answer that he gave was not it's going to be cheaper than Uber and Lyft. It was it's going to be more consistent. And so, like, kind of the the perspective that I think is is crystallizing. And again, I don't, you know, this is. I feel like I'm doing a lot of work here. They're not necessarily like communicating this specific message very well. Uh, if in fact this is sort of the deal, uh, but basically I think they're positioning that vehicle uh, and their service to be kind of the McDonald's of mobility, where it's that consistency where you always know you're going to get the exact same vehicle, the exact same driver, you know, even if you're paying the exact same price or even maybe a slight premium. That that's going to be worth it to a lot of people. That's how McDonald's went from you know a mom and pop little shop to a big. Of course, franchising is part of that. There's a lot, but but that consistency is what McDonald's brand is built on, and that doesn't exist in ride hailing today. And that is actually a really fascinating opportunity. So, and and if you look at how the vehicle itself is engineered, I think it also fits into that kind of McDonald's, you know, value, not fancy, not luxurious, not space age, just good value and practical and easy to clean. Um, and I think those things matter. And I think it really what that vehicle shows is that Cruise is thinking a lot about a business. The problem is from a, a, a communication side, it's very hard for all of the companies in this space to pivot from the sort of soaring, change the world, make everything, you know, get rid of road deaths sort of rhetoric that, that they've led with on their communications and, and go from that to like, we're, built, we're just building a business that's going to work. Like that's a tough transition to make. So I understand why they're having a hard time doing that. But like, that's actually the question that needs to be answered right now is, can you actually build a business that's going to work? And that cruise origin vehicle really improved my my optimism that cruise can in fact make that happen. Yeah, Ed, when I look at this vehicle, and you maybe tell me if this this comparison isn't fair, but it didn't look all that different from what Maymobility has been trying to do with these kind of fixed uh, uh, shuttle services. How different or similar is this origin vehicle to what Maymobility has been trying to do? Yeah, it's funny. Like I, I see that perception a lot from people who, who weren't there. Um, and uh, honestly, if I hadn't been allowed to go on stage and sit in the vehicle, I might make that comparison as well. It's not. It, it's a very different vehicle than that. Um, first of all, it's not a low-speed vehicle. Uh, there are two regulatory categories, low-speed and, and, and everything else. Um, it's going to fit in the, the everything else category, which, of course, is a challenge right now because we don't have uh, rules for that. And, and you know, Cruises and others, everyone is having to talk to, to the regulators about that. Um, and that's just not having a steering wheel and, and some of those other uh, federal motor vehicle safety standards. Um, it, it's also, so the vehicles that I would compare it to most um, are actually the London Electric Vehicle Company, um, which is a, owned by Geely, a Chinese company. And they sort of reinvented the classic black London cab. 
Um, and it's this like very kind of bulbous, spacious, like big flexible interior, big flexible opening doors, and like sort of facing, you know, bench seats that sort of face each other. Um, I think the the Toyota's the JPN taxi, sort of the new Tokyo standard taxi, is similar to that as well. Um, those are the vehicles that this reminds me of. It's a robo taxi, and honestly, uh, if I'd been in charge of comms at Cruise, um, I would have probably sort of presented this instead of beyond the car, which is again aspirational and <laughs> ambitious and all that, but vague. I would have said this is a robo taxi for the real world because that's that's really what it is. Yeah. It's like the first robo taxi I've seen. I'm like. Okay, I can see a fleet of these like operating as a viable business. And frankly, in this business, like that's as big to me as like even being able to go on like a fully driverless ride in a Waymo in Arizona, which was also a big moment for me personally and I think for the space. Uh, but but this is almost as important to me because the question of can you operate these things as a viable business is every bit as big as can you make dri- cars drive themselves. Right. Yeah, let's move on to Waymo. You were the first journalist uh, that was able to ride in one of these w- without a, a a driver operating the vehicle. What did you learn from that ride? Um, I, I learned that like the psychological impact of not having anybody like like of putting your life in the hands of technology is much greater than I expected. Uh, I've been in quite a few autonomous vehicles, always with safety drivers, um, and I sort of thought like you know, I'd seen it all. I've, I felt kind of jaded by the time I, I did this, frankly. And um, the psychological impact of realizing like, wow, I'm sitting here putting my hands and my life in the hands of this robot and there's no human there ready to take over in case something goes wrong. That was more psychologically impactful than I, than I thought. And it really reinforced something that I've been thinking for a while, which is that uh, trust is really like the most important thing in this business. Um, and and that really runs counter to sort of what we saw in the early hype years of, of autonomous vehicles where it was like this race and people were doing these like stunts and these like you know, kind of shady demos and stuff and, 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 and cutting corners even like as we saw with Uber and um, in Arizona. And, and I think, you know, when you realize like what an impact it is for consumers to really understand they're putting their lives in the hands of a robot, um, I think, you know, as, as that sinks in, more and more companies have to sort of take it slow not take as many risks, be more responsible because like the trust aspect is so critical to this business. Yeah. Another thing I've heard you talk about when it comes to, to Waymo and the, the autonomous ride is, is when you look at, you know, snap your fingers, assume this technology exists here today that the driver is able to move around in, in the area, in the geofenced area. There's all these other things that rideshare drivers and those sorts of things uh, do, maybe whether that's, you know, trying to find your driver on the street and them being able to flag you down and that sort of thing. How should we think about those sorts of problems as we look at the future of autonomy? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I think the story of autonomy in, in, in a way has been sort of, um, you know, like a lot of things, has been this progress from sort of thinking of it as, yeah, a hard problem, but sort of like one hard problem, which is like teaching the cars how to drive. And as you get away from that sort of like R&D type of approach to it and towards more of an actual product development approach, you start to realize when you take a human out of, of the equation, you're not just taking a human out of the driving equation, you're taking a human out of a whole customer experience um, and a cu- customer service uh, experience. Uh, and so, you know, Waymo's doing a lot of research into that. Uh, it's been interesting too to see the, the cruise origin. And then actually I was just uh, I was just at Zooks today, which is another company in the specifically in the robotaxi space. Uh, they all have very different approaches uh, to, to this consumer product experience question. And I don't think, you know, we have all the answers to that. So, so what's interesting is, is like, as the technology matures, and as that becomes sort of, you know, we can build more confidence in, in throughout, yeah, okay, so we're going to be able to teach cars how to drive, you know, even within some limitations. Uh, we're, we're still, I think, as a space, AV companies, uh, the sector is, is still beginning to understand that, like, customer interactions can be very complex and unpredictable as well as, you know, just like driving can. And, and they're trying to have to like, you know, now focus a little bit more on, on that and how do you solve some of the more complicated uh, uh, con- consumer interaction problems uh, without a human in the loop. This has been interesting for me to watch because it's like the automakers know more about this than the tech guys. Uh, I mean, Ford, Ford and Domino's, everybody's laughing at that because there's a human hidden in the fake self-driving pizza delivery thing. But they, they were doing that to gather this kind of information. How does a self-driving pizza vehicle deliver a pizza You know, with nobody to get out and bring it to the person? I, these kind, I mean, slightly different space, but this, these kinds of questions 
um, I think are much more important than the technology side uh, realized until fairly recently. And it's like, whoa, okay, wait, now we have to think through a taxi service. Uh, you know, I think, I, think, I think people like Uber were maybe onto this more than some of the pure technology, pure software shops. But, um, but yeah, it's been really interesting to watch them sort of creep toward these kinds of questions. Yeah, on Uber, that's an, that's another one. When you look at their autonomy aspirations over the past year, uh, kind of hard to get a, get a grasp on, on where they stand. You know, they had the the crash back in 2018, and then then in 2019, it was revealed that you know if they want to keep their current autonomy strategy, they're going to need to pay a, a license fee uh, to Waymo going forward. Uh, so if you look at Uber's self driving business as it exists today, where does it stand? Yeah, um, I actually don't really understand why Uber is still trying to develop their own self-driving stack. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me in a, in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, they've really been the, the poster child for like what not to do on the trust issue, which again is like becoming more and more important all the time. They do have a, a good understanding of the consumer experience thing, which I think is valuable. Um, but you know they're you know they're also a public company. Uh, they can't just, you know, keep raising money forever to to funnel into, you know, a thing that is 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 sucking down hundreds of millions of dollars a quarter. Um, and then finally, I think the the sort of on a strategic level, the thing that I have not ever really understood about Uber is like how they make that transition from being an asset light company that doesn't own their fleet to now with RoboCars, you're not just owning a fleet, you're operating a fleet, and that's a very very it's it's a whole you know business right there with a lot of expertise and tribal knowledge and all this kind of stuff that they can't just go out and necessarily acquire. Uh, so I think they need to keep a toe in the technology because I think ultimately, for better or for worse, they're going to be one of the gatekeepers in terms of saying like, this vehicle is safe enough to let on our platform versus it's not. Um, they may in fact be making those decisions before regulators are if, if we don't see some action by regulators soon. Um, so they need to keep a toe in the technology developing their own stack though again maybe i'm missing something i i'm not seeing the the impetus there right and when you look at what lyft strategy has been has been to partner with other uh, autonomous operators that the big one there is aptive that's been running their uh, autonomous operation in las vegas for the for the past several years just announced um, a, a joint venture with hyundai when you look at aptive that's the only tier one supplier that's really playing significantly in this space or is that would that be correct would that be a correct uh, characterization i mean it's uh, Depends on what you mean by seriously, right? Like, there's like almost every tier one supplier has some uh, strategy around autonomous drive. Um, but as a full stack developer, yeah. And 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 by the way, like Aptive is uh, one of the successor companies of Delphi, and like it was split off from sort of the the core traditional automotive supplier business, and it's sort of the the tech part of the business. So they're a little more focused on that and so maybe they arguably have to do that right more than like a bosch or a, a you know, although bosch is very involved with mercedes and daimler uh zf uh says they're investing a lot of money in into this technology um so so yeah no i mean the tier ones definitely like, they kind of need to be frankly i think you, you know a lot of startups have been talking about disrupting oems for a long time i think what's turning out is that really the risk in some ways is more much more to the tier one and even tier two potentially suppliers uh, the supply chain than, than the OEMs themselves. Last thing, what we're talking about, companies and, and sectors in, in autonomy. Uh, another area that gets maybe not nearly as much attention as the, the robo-taxi business are these autonomous delivery robots that are you know either on the sidewalk or in the, or in the bike lane. Are we going to see these before we see these full self-driving cars on, on the road? Or how should we think about this, this robot delivery business? Yeah. Um, so I definitely I've not paid as much attention to to the delivery robots as I have to the, the vehicles. I, I sort of have come into this from more of an auto industry background. Um, so I, I think the big appeal of the delivery bots is regulatory. Right. Well, so it's it's two things, right? It's it's uh, on the tech side and the regulatory side. Um, they're both made easier. Both of those the challenges, which are where two, you know some of the biggest challenges in the space lie. Uh, are made easier by the fact that these things just move slower and have less mass, right? Like safety issues arise from speed and mass, and, and these have less of both of those. Uh, that said, I'm not entirely convinced that there won't be, if, you know, well, and there already has been, right? Like uh, regulatory backlash against these things, uh, certainly on sidewalks. Uh, there's a company whose name escapes me right now um, that is targeting the bike lane. That's I think interesting because uh, it avoids certain kinds of backlash. But then again, like 
the quote unquote bike lobby uh, is, you know, <laughs> has its own power too. So anywhere you go, you're going to have challenges. And, and so I definitely don't think that these delivery bots are like necessarily a shortcut, um, you know, at least at scale. Uh, so, so I think with, you know, just like Robotaxi, I think we're going to see them in limited areas where the governments, and the local regulators are okay with them, uh, where there's not a sort of populist backlash against them. Uh, and, and again, what, you know, if they can make money. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned regulatory barriers. That's, that's something I want, I want to talk about as well. What are the current regulatory barriers to self-driving? Yeah. So, so this is a, I mean, it's a very big complex issue, right? Um, I think there's a there's a couple of things though that are worth noting. So essentially, the federal motor vehicle safety standards, um, uh, you know, are the are the sort of core of automotive safety regulation that, that every vehicle on the road has to comply with, unless it's a low speed vehicle which is under 25 miles per hour. Um, those standards are are quite old and are all very much not all, but but a lot of them uh, assume a human driver. There's been talk for a long time about um, you know, building a new regular new regulatory cat- uh, categories. Um, I think you know, the, but there hasn't been much. And then, so so there are kind of two approaches to it, right? You either build a new regulatory category and say this is an autonomous vehicle, and here are the standards that make sense for that, um, or you know, sort of the the approach that sort of been seemed like it was sort of the one that was was happening right now is is you just get waivers as you need them from the very specific rules. So like. You know, GM was one of the first to apply for a waiver. They said we want to have a cruise on the uh, a cruise uh, Chevy Bolt on the road with no steering wheel. Can we have a waiver to do that? Well, it's I don't know, John. Has it been two years since they applied? It's been a long, lot longer than yeah, they it's expected. Been over a year, yeah, um, yeah. Um, they've got another one going on uh, with the city of New York, of course, and and that one is just sort of sitting there as well. Uh, yeah, it has been a long time. Yeah. So, so it would, so what's interesting about this though, is that like the, the, the obstacle right now is about, uh, the, the, the physical mechanical, not, not just mechanical, but like the physical aspects of the car. It's not about the, so there's zero regulation about the software. And which is interesting because like, you know, Elon Musk has been sort of forwarding like regulatory barriers as like, you know, this thing that could prevent us from updating, uh, you know, our cars to be full self-driving capable. Um, and that's completely not true because there's no regulation of the software and their cars, the, the physical parts of the cars are all FMVSS compliant. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to sell them right now. And so if you have an FMVSS compliant car and you're just pushing software to it, right now in this country anyway, in the United States, there's zero regulatory barrier. So ironically, like the guy who's complaining about the most has the least to complain about, uh, which of course raises questions about why. Right. And when you say FMVSS compliant, that, that really is just saying you need to have a, a steering wheel, pedals, that sort of thing, correct? Yeah. And, and like with certain dimensions and, and you know, places, locations and, and you know, blinkers and, and lots of kind of minutia, but a lot of which are revolve around human control schemes. Because clearly, like from a regulatory perspective, when you have humans driving, you want that control scheme to be fairly standardized so that anyone can just get in the car and use it. And so that's those are sort of the regulations that, that are a challenge. Sure. If you're getting rid of the human controls, do you think we'll ever own personally owned self-driving vehicles? This is a really interesting question, and I think if you'd asked me a couple months ago, um, I, you know, obviously never say never, right? But I would have said that's not really on the horizon. Um, I had a really interesting conversation um, myself and the other members of the Autonicast with with John Kraftchik of Waymo, CEO of Waymo, um, and this I'm this is looking like something that they're actually. He's mentioned it before um, that it's possible that you might have a a, ve- a a privately owned vehicle that is fully autonomous within a certain geofence. He's did mention that. He gave us a little bit more detail on that, or a little more of a, a sense, let's say, of what that might look like. Um, and I think it's a, it's an interesting the the prospect he raises is an interesting one, which is essentially you know maybe there's a a, a one year lease or like a short term lease. Uh, where you get this vehicle that is capable of being fully autonomous within an established Waymo fence, but it's yours. And, and, and then after that, that lease term expires, it sort of maybe goes into the fleet. And I think the, the, the key factor in that, uh, in, in how, that, how they're thinking about that, is actually just um, uh, service. Right. Essentially, like he was like, I can't imagine trying to keep LIDAR serviced, you know, for 10, 15 years. And that's the thing with a privately owned car is engineered to be, you know, about 10 years. Right. Or, or more, hopefully. 
um, average car on the road is 11 years old, or at least it was, I think it's going up. Um, and so, so, you know, if they can deal with the cost part of it, actually, by, by having a shorter term lease, probably charging a, a hefty premium for it, and then putting it into a fleet of like ride hailing or delivery vehicles. I think that's how they make the economics of it work. Um, so, so my mind has expanded on this. And that's one of the great things about this space is like, you know, people are be, thinking very creatively about a lot of different ways to deploy this technology and uh, you got to keep your mind open and be, be ready to learn all the time because things are not set in stone. Yeah, I know the discussion a few years ago, um, I had this discussion with a, a, a senior Ford person, like that autonomy could be something you switch on in a normal passenger car. Like, you know, you go to a dinner party and it's late and you had three glasses of wine while the car drives you home, that kind of thing. People are not thinking about that anymore because of the sensor issue, as you said. It's, it's you know, either the car is self-driving or it's not for the most part. And it's, unless it's a very expensive car or a car that is you know extravagantly maintained at least right now with what people know how to do it's it, it's not going to work that way um and and yet at the same time right like i think one of the reasons tesla has been so successful with the approach that they've had is that like it's very hard for people to you know think about their own life now and imagine a future where they just don't own a car especially in, again in this country where that's so fundamental and what what tesla benefits from is is like they're on the one hand they're giving you this new futuristic cool thing on the other hand it's coming to you in a totally recognizable package which is the privately owned uh sort of premium sedan and 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 so like that idea works for people as a story because like it, it bridges the gap between this future that's a little bit like too different to just embrace uh and and what they have right now now just because it works as a story doesn't mean it makes sense you know beyond sort of that narrative level and i think that's where tesla gets interesting yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of many places where Tesla gets <laughs> Yeah. Before we want to move on to Tesla, I do. I do have uh, two more questions I want to ask about the uh, the kind of broader autonomy space before we dive into Tesla and into the book and all that. So you mentioned Waymo. Uh, we, we've talked about uh, the geofence currently in place as far as operating driverless uh, robo taxi services. It's really only in Chandler, Arizona, right now uh, with Waymo. As you look at these businesses scaling and moving to additional geofences and that sort of thing, uh, how do you see that playing out over time and what kind of timeline is realistic to expect? Huh. Yeah, uh, the timeline, man. I, I, I'm just going to take a pass on that because that's just it's just way too hard. I do think, um, you know, one of the the major um, perception like hangups in people, like the public, the general public understanding autonomous vehicles, has been that you know the the paradigm of what a car is and and how they operate like that's so well established over 100 years and and billions of dollars a year in marketing and 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 so like we have this very and so we think of self-driving like autonomous vehicles as just being self-driving cars right and 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 clearly that's not the case and clearly um there are a lot of things that you need to do to enter a new market and some of that are technological right like adapting to local driving conditions you know building a new map like understanding where you are and what you need to avoid and all you know those sorts of things but um you know so a lot of it's economic as well like it's expensive to scale uh and, and i think people also really underestimate if you're operating a fleet um you know that takes real estate it takes people it takes equipment it takes investment and so you're investing huge amounts in the in in the technology itself uh and then you know to scale this like it's not going to be it's not a typical software product right like i think a lot of people thought of autonomy as a software product and like once you develop it you just copy and paste it and it scales and like that's not how this is going to work it's going to be much more like scaling in a way, almost a traditional auto industry, uh, an auto business, in that you have to invest in bricks and mortar and people and organizations and structures and local government relationships and all these things. So it's not, we're not going to see a typical tech company scale where it's like, okay, we've proven it works. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to be piece by piece, city by city. And um, as my co host Alex Roy says, what's really going to be interesting is when you start to get multiple providers in the same city. Um, you know, that that's when. I think this space can be really fun to watch because uh, then you get some of that head tech competition and you'll see like you know, what's working and what's not. And you're not going to see tech margins, software margins when that happens either. That's another issue. I mean, you got to make money here and you got to make yeah. money. That's something that people like Dan Hammond talk about a lot, but that not everybody talks about as much as they should have should be talking about it is you know once you've deployed all that hardware, once you've bought all that brick and mortar, once you've hired all that people, uh, what's left? 
you know, of your margin. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, you get your rides down to 98 cents a mile or whatever. But, you know, if it's costing you a dollar three a mile to deliver it, it's, you know, that doesn't work as a business. That's another place where it doesn't work as a business. And so what do you cut? What do you change? How do you do that? And, and that's the kind of thing that will be sorted out with competition. Sure. It means that a lot of the companies that look like sure bets two years from now may not look like sure bets four years from now. Absolutely. And that, that is endemic of when you talk about the, uh, the, the hype cycle, uh, that, uh, yeah, the, the peak of the peak of the hype cycle, and and after that uh, trough of disillusionment comes. Uh, if you look at the hype cycle, it is the I guess the slope of enlightenment, where you have this slow progression over time of the technology taking place, and maybe it's not as flashy and as exciting as we thought at the beginning, but it becomes part of our everyday lives and integrates uh, with what we do. When uh, Ed, as when you look at self driving, we're, we're now in this trough of disillusionment. But as you look out ten years down the line, we're on this slope of enlightenment. What does that look like? Uh, well, you know, interestingly, I think a lot of this this hype cycle stuff um, really does exist in the realm of perception. Uh, and what's interesting, so so I think like this cruise origin reveal kind of encapsulates and the sort of complexity of where we are because in a way, like as a product, I feel like that does is like one of the first hints of what of like how I think about what the slope of enlightenment might look like. It's this, you know, it's not trying to be fancy in space. It's not trying to impress you know, uh, the typical like tech hype kind of thing. It's, it's a very simple, basic, you know, engineer to a cost kind of a thing. It's a um, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's like a taxi bus. Yeah. It's sort of, the, it's, it's a new thing. Right. Um, and, but, but it's pragmatic and it's clearly built around operating a sustainable, viable business. On the other hand, the communication around that, that launch of that vehicle has been really like mired, it's like weirdly mired both in the past of the AV sector and of the auto industry kind of in a weird way. It's almost like the worst about, I don't mean to rag on, on Cruz's comms team like so much, but like clearly there were challenges there. And so like, to the extent that, you know, peak hype and, and traffic disillusionment and therefore also some of enlightenment is, is exists in the realm of perception. Uh, weirdly, like communications are super, super important. And, you know, I can't blame anyone in this space because just like this technology is new and developing new technology, you know, there are unknown unknowns and you just get these really challenging things that come up and you can't anticipate. I think the same thing is true in communications and, and sort of managing public perception. And we're still, you know, that, that's a lot of what we're seeing is just like finding out how to modulate that, you know, those expectations, how to, you know, get people excited in your company, but not too excited. And, and so, so weirdly and, and maybe it's because i you know as a as a writer and uh, you know i've kind of focused more on those on the that perception side but i think it really really matters and i think that um companies are going to have to really invest a lot in that um so that they can they can deal with that because it's not just it's not enough to have you know the vehicle that looks like the slope of enlightenment you have to get people to understand what that slope of enlightenment is what is realistic uh and how to think about that yeah, so let's change gears now and talk about Ludacris, uh, your, your book on on Tesla. We, we just got done talking about getting people really excited, uh, jazzed up, and I think Tesla has, uh, has definitely succeeded at that. Uh, this was your first book. Why did you decide to write it? Um, yeah, boy, so it's so long ago now. No, um, you know, look, I think I think Tesla is the most important story in the world of cars, uh, that, and that's really like the core of it. Um, I you know, I had obviously been aware of them for a while and I'd you know, done some blog posts and stuff about them in the past, but I didn't really take them seriously until um, I sort of got interested in the battery swap thing because I'd been really interested in the company that was doing that. And I thought it was, that was sort of the first exposure I had to sort of mobility tech as something distinct from the auto, the traditional auto industry. And so with Tesla, I think it, it, they, you know, it, it's important in, in multiple ways. Like, yes, it's important because they popularized electric cars in a way that hadn't been done before. Um, but I think more importantly, almost to me, is that they popularize the auto industry more generally uh, in a way that it hadn't been before. And that's great. Like for someone who writes about the auto industry and uh, like, you know, th- this my background, like that's a wonderful thing. I, I'm very excited that like more people are, are interested in that. Uh, unfortunately, what's gotten that interest has been um, a narrative that, that very often diverges from reality. And so that was the opportunity I saw. I saw it was for me really at its core. It was an opportunity 
to uh, leverage the excitement that Tesla had created about the auto industry uh, and, and use it to ensure that the right lessons are being learned. And now, of course, the Tesla fans say, well, yeah, you think the right lessons is that, you know, Tesla sucks. Like, you know, uh, and uh, I really, that one of the challenges with the book is, was absolutely getting away from this intensely polarized uh, discussion about it. And, and frankly, it, it, it ended up being a very therapeutic experience um, where I could like really purge some of my more emotional responses to the topic, um, which is good. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, really the core of it was like, this is an opportunity to get people who wouldn't have paid attention to the auto industry before to understand why is it the way it is? Is it that like these companies are all just dinosaurs who never change because they're dumb? Or have there been evolutionary forces that have shaped the auto industry into what it is today? Um, and, and sort of why has Tesla been able to be really, really successful at some things and really, really not successful at other things? What are the cultural differences between tech and, and, and the auto industry? I think their story illustrates these really important things and, and especially illustrates the most important lesson I think you can take from any story about this sort of new world of mobility tech, which we discussed uh, you know, just, just a little bit ago, which is it really takes both of these, right? It, you need the technology, you need startups to, to innovate and come up with new stuff. But like to turn that into a product that, that exists in the real world and can last for you know, years or decades and, and millions of miles and all the things that need to happen for these to become real products, you really need the auto industry, especially to make them at scale. And, and so the real core challenge that Tesla's story illuminates, I think, is the, the need to make these two very different cultures somehow find an, an accommodation and the ability to come together because it's in both sides self-interest. Hey, you talk about culture a fair, a fair bit in the book, comparing and contrasting Tesla's manufacturing culture to the Toyota production system that really governs much of manufacturing uh, across the rest of, of you know the re other businesses that do manufacturing. Uh, how significant is that cultural difference? How does that shape Tesla? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it, they almost are polar opposites, right? Like, if you think about about what you know what a startup is, right? It's like it's small. It's creative. It's it, it's a small group of talented people who operate uh, in a loose, unstructured way in order to be as creative as possible and come up with creative solutions to tough challenges. Uh, uh, manufacturing culture is almost the exact opposite. It, it 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 exists because scale demands it. So it's fundamentally scale based rather than built around a small group of people. It's much more about fitting each individual fitting into their role in the broader system than necessarily being as loose as possible so that they come up with creative stuff as possible. Like, like, and, and, and it also is about regimenting the pace, not just the relationships between the different parts of the structure, but, but, but making sure that every part of this massively scaled system is all moving at the same pace so that all the pieces interlock harmoniously, um, which again, like, you know, with, with, uh, with the startup, it's more like, you know, drink a bunch of Red Bull and like hackathon your way through this problem. And then like, you know, go sleep for a couple of days and then like, you know, come back and do it all. You know, it's, it's very fits and starts. So it's almost like sort of like the two, like if you think of like, uh, you know, human personalities, like it's sort of the two polar extremes of like the creative type and the like company man sort of a thing. Right. It's, and it's more, it's more than that, but like you imagine a couple made up of those two kinds of people. It certainly happens, right? Like opposites attract, opposites can very much complement each other. And frankly, to me, like, the, the, one of the big turning points in Tesla's history, uh, and and really some of the tragic things, is that they had they had partnerships with Toyota and Daimler, who are two of the most respected companies in the business. And um, you know, what my sources have told me about that is that it was basically both of those relations, particularly the Toyota one, um, were pretty much doomed from day one. Um, it wasn't not it wasn't just Toyota's fault. There was definitely arrogance on both sides. There was a lack of appreciation of what the other side could bring. To a relationship and the unwillingness to make concessions in order to make that relationship work, um, and unfortunately, I haven't seen really any progress, certainly from Tesla, uh, toward wanting to have that kind of accommodation. What you have seen, however, is more recent startups uh, who are inspired, clearly inspired by Tesla, clearly getting funding because of Tesla's success. Uh, who recognize, you know, okay, like there are some things that Tesla's done really well, but there are other things where they've just, there've been a lot of own goals. And like manufacturing is one of those things where like, okay, like why would we go through 
the multiple production house that Tesla keeps putting itself through every time it comes out with a new product when you can partner with people who know how this stuff works and just requires you to make some concessions and some accommodations to the way they can be successful. Uh, yeah, it's so different to talk to people from like Lucid or Rivian uh, and, and, and just to listen to really how much they've taken the Tesla lesson to heart uh, in their, I mean, Rivian went out and, and cut a deal with Ford and I mean, they've got Joe Hendricks on their board and he's Ford's manufacturing guru. Uh, you know, they really went that way. Lucid uh, hired a bunch of uh, Tesla veterans and also a whole bunch of industry veterans. They had, you know, people from Mazda and a few other companies uh, who really knew manufacturing and they're like, we're going to do this the right way, not some new way. And, and, and it was, it's really interesting to hear that and contrast with what we've heard from Tesla for so many years now. Yeah. Sure. We spent we spent the the, the bulk of this uh, of this conversation talking about autonomy more broadly. Let's talk about Tesla Autopilot. Uh, when you look at that technology, obviously the the big number everybody talks about is the million robo taxis by the end of twenty twenty. Uh, when you look at the state of the art of that of that technology today, how do you handicap the likelihood of that uh, playing out? So look, I think I think you know Tesla's story is really interesting because it's so it's there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad. And I think if you look at the company holistically, certainly that's the case. Uh, as an electric vehicle manufacturer, that's absolutely the case. They've done some really, really good things, uh, along with having some challenges that they've had to overcome and, and maybe not even overcome fully. Uh, but I think when you look at Tesla as an automated driving company, I think the story is very different. I think it's very unambiguously not positive. Uh, I think they basically, Autopilot was a, essentially a system that, um, you know that 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 Google had had developed early in its self-driving car program, and they'd refused to put it on the market. They, they, they'd at one point consider putting a product just like Autopilot, in fact, called Autopilot, on the market. Uh, refused to do it because of the safety concerns around predictable abuse that we're now seeing pop up in these NTSB investigations of the of the people who've died and 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 run into ambulances and and things like that. Um, and so and 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 so not only do they take a product that you know they knew you know or that that Google certainly knew was unsafe uh, and say, well, if you're not going to put it in the market, we will. Um, but they also, you know, multiple engineers ha have come forward and, and said to the media that, you know, we need to have better driver monitoring, whether that's camera-based system or like a capacitive touch thing to make sure your hands are on the wheel instead of having that torque-based uh, wheel sensor. Um, and clearly, I think history has um, has, has done that. And, and and really, like, throughout throughout this this, you know, Tesla's involvement in automated driving, they've, it's always been this, I've always gotten the sense that it's like, they know that autonomous drive is coming. They also know that because they've got all this other stuff on their plate, they're maybe not necessarily going to be able to kind of compete by doing things the way that sort of the consensus, uh, like the level four robotaxi fleet based kind of thing that, that is really formed a consensus around how this technology is going to be deployed. And so what they've done is they've tried to sort of you know, pull together as much of it as they can uh, into a consumer product. And so like they're unique in the marketplace in that sense. Nobody else is out there saying, you know, buy this car and it will either be sort of self-driving or it will definitely be fully self-driving at, at some point. Um, but I think it's important to, to, to understand the history. I think it's important to understand how limited uh, their sensor stack is. Um, I think once that, that to me, it's the hardware, right? They can update the software. And if you just believe that uh, computer vision is going to be nine nines reliable uh, anytime soon, you know you probably believe that Tesla is going to be able to deliver on this promise. I do not think that that's the case. If you talk to basically anybody in what I would, I would call the mainstream of the of the autonomous vehicle business, um, none of them think that that's even close to the like on the horizon. Um, and uh, I, you know, it increasingly looks like. You know, and, and Tesla's history is full of them having to like kind of you know push the boundary on things in order to survive because the core of their business has always been so challenged. And I think this is like where that pattern reaches a breaking point because they have taken money at the peak of hype in 2016, like 2016, they, they started taking money based on a level five, you know, capability that nobody else in the industry is even talking about. Um, and with a sensor suite that is like you know, an ADAS, it's a driver assistance, not a full autonomy sensor suite. Uh, I don't think there's any way they can do it. And frankly, I think this is the biggest question right now about Tesla is how do they manage that? Because they do have loyal fans, but like 
you know, they've been getting a lot of money from people. And uh, if this starts turning into lawsuits, let alone you know, fraud charges or anything like that, uh, things get really interesting really fast. Okay, Ed, you wrote the book. The book came out back in August. Uh, obviously, a lot has happened uh, with Tesla, and that there all, a, lot, a lot always happens with Tesla, but particularly in that period uh, uh, since the book came out. If you were writing the book again today, what of that, what's happened since then, would you add to the book and why? Yeah, so um, I, one of the last chapters, um, I, I sort of try and I ended with the, the, the roadster and semi reveal um, and sort of like use that as sort of a, a way to show that kind of like, internally the culture has sort of spiraled a little bit out of control and it's like what elon thinks is cool is going to happen whether or not like an electric semi is a product category that makes sense let alone whether there are synergies with what tesla is doing in its core business uh if elon thinks it's cool it happens and, and this is like a very very core issue uh with tesla uh and with their culture <laughs> i wish that i could have used the the Cybertruck reveal like to illustrate that because i think it illustrates it even better uh, then, then the semi and rose to reveal. Uh, it also the Cybertruck reveal really illustrates what a tightrope Tesla is on, and that's that's to me. I mean, whatever you think Tesla is worth as an investor, and like I don't do that kind of financial. I'm not an investor. I've never given investor advice. Like Tesla's story has been the first time I've really been exposed to the whole stock market aspect of all of this in a really intense personal way. And I think no matter what you think Tesla is worth or how much money they're going to make or, or any of that, you have to recognize just by looking at the history that there has been so much risk and there continues to be so much risk. And Elon Musk is a person who is intensely comfortable with crazily high levels of risk. And I think what, you know, uh, when the Cybertruck reveal happened, I had people asking me like, you know, how, how could this happen? And I was like, my answer was really like, it's surprising that something like this hasn't happened already because there have been so many instances where they've been incredibly lucky to have not had some kind of real egg in the face moments and, and real confidence shaking things. And, and frankly, I think, you know, from my perspective, certainly uh, looking at the future of that company, uh, since they're not trying to change how they operate and what their culture is like, uh, I think that more Cybertruck-esque and, and potentially even crazier situations are uh, await us in the future. So, Yeah, Tesla's every, everybody's favorite company to follow. I know I'll be uh, following it very closely uh, going into the future. Ed, thanks so much for coming on the show, sharing your, your knowledge. Uh, if folks want to follow your work going forward, where can they find it? Uh, so I'm on Twitter at Tweetermeyer, uh, T-W-E-E-T-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R. Um, I'm also sort of focused full time at this point on the Autonicast. Uh, I'm doing some some uh, freelance work, uh, which you'll be able to find by following me on Twitter. But otherwise, Autonicast.com or, or subscribe to the Autonicast on your favorite podcast platform. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Ed Niedermeyer and John Rosevere, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and full on. Mm-hmm.